More than 75 years have passed since the Navy has had to repair several battle-damaged ships all at once. Now naval planners are wondering whether this capability might be needed once again, but the way they are going about thinking about it and planning it is operating without a compass. We get more now from the Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office, Diana Maurer. Ms. Maurer, good to have you back. It's great to be back on the show, Tom. Thank you. So the Navy is thinking about this because they are worried there might be a shooting naval situation with China, basically, correct? That's right. Over the last few years, the Navy and actually the U.S. military writ large has been focusing a lot more of its planning and training and acquisition and sustainment efforts to think about something that really had been unthinkable until recently, which is great power conflict potentially with China or Russia for that matter. And battle damage ship repair is part of what the Navy in particular has been focused on. And they did have two destroyers that were in a sad state of disrepair at once in recent years because of the collisions in the Seventh Fleet. And so they had to repair two at once. And that was a heavy lift, no pun intended, for them to do. So they're thinking about now if they had to repair five, six, seven ships at once. What is the capacity at this point in the nation for that kind of work? Do we know? We have a sense from some of our prior work here at GAO that that capacity, frankly, is limited. We've issued reports over the last couple of years that show that the Navy has struggled with just doing its regular planned maintenance. For example, uh, we reported last year that over the course of the last seven years, the Navy has been losing on average the equivalent of 15 ships every single year simply because it can't perform its maintenance on time at the the durations that it's planned. And that's during a time of relative peacetime. So that raised a lot of questions in our mind about the Navy's ability to do repairs on a number of ships at the same time who are all significantly damaged as a result of conflict. Yeah, so it's an issue of yard capacity and what about technical expertise and the supply base, even if they have the yard space to pull damaged ships into? It's certainly a function of all those things. You know, in our our look at uh, regular ship maintenance, we found that there are a limited number of dry docks, for example, that the U.S. has available to do planned maintenance. The Navy does not have as many spare parts as it used to have. There are some workforce challenges and that a number of their key experts in ship repair have either retired or are retirement eligible. So those are all things that challenge our ability to repair just based on the current operational tempo. When we move into thinking about the unthinkable, which is high-end conflict with China or Russia, it's not clear whether those capabilities will be sufficient to meet what the Navy would need in the event of a conflict. And your report is also looking at their methodology or the way they are going about even thinking about planning for it. I say that deliberately. They're not planning for it directly. There sounds like they're thinking about how to plan for it. And that is not all gelled, is it? The whole process of of thinking about the plan. Right. You know, you're absolutely right. So big picture, the Navy and the rest of the U.S. military, appropriately so, spends a lot of time planning and thinking about and being ready for all different kinds of scenarios that we all hope will never come to pass. So I think that's sort of the, the bold underline in all this. Like no one wants the U.S. Navy to go to war with the Chinese Navy or the Russian Navy. But if that does happen, they need to be ready. And so one of the challenges that we found was that there are eight different organizations within the U.S. Navy undertaking 15 different studies, reviews, assessments, what have you, looking at how they can improve their battle damage repair capabilities. And so it was spread across the Navy, and we thought that there was a need for greater 
strategic coherence. Yeah, it's like when they have a bunch of children in the swimming pool. If if everybody's watching, you know, nobody's watching is the old saying. We're speaking with Diana Maurer, Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the Government Accountability Office. And you've made a couple of recommendations, three recommendations, basically to tell them to get their planning effort organized. Just review those for us quickly. Yeah, sure. So first we recommended that the Navy put someone clearly in charge of this. As I mentioned, there are eight different organizations, 15 different efforts. We think someone should be looking holistically across those efforts to make sure that they're all adding up collectively into what the Navy needs. Secondly, we think it's important for the Navy to write down who would be in charge of making decisions about battle damage repair in the event of a conflict. That's not currently specifically spelled out. And for those first two recommendations, there are a number of officials we talked to within the Navy who had done studies and reviews saying that this was something that the Navy needed. Our third recommendation is a little more wonky, but it has to do with how the Navy models battle damage against its its existing ships and its, its existing fleet. Ships change, they're modified, they're upgraded after they are built. The Navy's battle damage models that they use in war games and other things are not being updated and changed in parallel with those upgrades. And we think that is really important for the Navy's planning efforts. So we think all three of these recommendations are constructive and helpful to the Navy to be ready for the unthinkable. Yeah, and repairing a ship that is battle damaged, this is not a pit stop where they bing, bang, boom, it's in there a couple weeks and turns around and goes out. It can take years, correct, to really repair a ship that's damaged by some kinetic force. Oh, absolutely. You know, one of the things us working on this report sort of talked about as we were doing the work was that far too many people have watched far too many documentaries about World War II, right? And there are stories like the USS Yorktown. They turned it around and they fixed it and got it back out to sea in, in three days. Well, modern 21st century naval systems, cruisers, destroyers, aircraft carriers, are highly sophisticated weapon systems. Battle damage is going to involve lots of people, lots of money, and lots of time. And so it's important that the Navy think about it, have a clear uh, structure in place with strategic oversight, and have clear guidance for command and control in the event of a conflict. I mean, it takes them six months to rewire one ship with new new networking cable, let alone actually repairing it. And uh, what was the Navy's reaction here? Well, it was a little bit mixed. They agreed with the substantive direction of all of our recommendations. They agreed that someone should be in charge. They agreed that there should be clear command and control responsibilities. And they agreed that they should be updating their assessments of what would happen in case the ships were damaged. Their view was that, one, everyone in the Navy sort of understands who's in charge. Two, that it didn't need to be written down. And three, that they were in the process of updating these things. We didn't see that. We thought our recommendations were important. We think it is important to write down command and control. We think it is important to formally designate who is in charge. And we do think it's important for them to formally and more frequently update these battle damage simulations, as you will, as one way to put it for, for the different weapon systems. So we stand by our recommendations. And we hope that the Navy fully implements them. All right. Diana Maurer is Director of Defense Capabilities and Management Issues at the GAO. As always, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Tom. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. 
Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment, Shane, and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the, the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, 
who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community, uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the, 
Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work is done. And, uh, and, 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 and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Celebrate this holiday season by sending money to your loved ones with Western Union. As a new customer, you can enjoy a $0 transfer fee when you send money online. For fast and reliable money transfers, use Western Union. Visit westernunion.com or download our app today to get started and your first transfer fee is on us. Services offered by Western Union Financial Services, Inc., NMLS 906983 or Western Union International Services, LLC, NMLS 906985. FX Gain Supply. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.